Welcome to Equip to Survive's Equipcast podcast with your host, Doug Ritter, editor of Equip to Survive and chairman of the nonprofit Equip to Survive Foundation. If the question is survival or emergency preparedness, www.equipped.org is the answer. That's E-Q-U-I-P-P-E-D dot O-R-G. Now, here's Doug. Our subject for this equipped cast is basic emergency preparedness for you and your family and the so-called 72-hour kit. Emergency preparedness doesn't have to be expensive, and you don't have to buy special survival gear and supplies to be prepared for a natural or man-made emergency. It's quite easy to assemble a basic 72-hour emergency or survival kit with a trip to the supermarket and hardware store. That doesn't mean it will be the lightest possible kit, nor take up the least volume, but it will keep you going when things take a turn for the worse. We're making an assumption here that you're going to work at keeping yourself out of public shelters, either by sheltering at home or by evacuating with sufficient supplies to get to where you're going. In this equipped cast, we'll look at a very basic kit of equipment and supplies that will see you through most emergencies. By basic, I mean just the essentials and little more. On Equipped to Survive, you'll find a fairly extensive list of gear and supplies to possibly include in what some might call an ultimate disaster preparedness kit for your home and family. But that's for another cast. Prudence suggests you'll probably always want more than we'll discuss here today. And every kit needs to be adjusted to fit your own environment. If you live where it gets cold, you may want to add more stuff to keep you warm, for example. This is true no matter if you assemble your own kit or if you buy one of the many commercially prepared kits. Back to that 72-hour thing. The emergency preparedness industry has settled on 72 hours as a reasonable length of time for which one ought to be prepared, at a minimum. This is based on historical evidence that suggests by the end of 72 hours, at least in first world countries, government services will be restored to the point that you can avail yourselves of them without major difficulty. It certainly doesn't mean things will be back to normal, not even close, just that we would expect government and other types of assistance to be available by then. What you're trying to prepare for is to be able to take care of yourself and your loved ones during the first hours and days when government and volunteer services may not be able to respond as fully or as quickly as anyone would like. The reality is it takes time to organize and marshal the equipment and people needed. You may well be on your own until then in any widespread or significant disaster. As a result of Hurricane Katrina in August 2005, Many folks started questioning whether 72 hours is long enough. 72 hours is a place to start, but there are circumstances where it would be prudent to be prepared to be on your own for a week. If you live someplace where a large-scale natural disaster is likely, and New Orleans certainly qualified, as does much of urban California and other areas subject to hurricanes and earthquakes, you need to prepare for longer. If you live where government services are notoriously poor, and New Orleans again qualified in that regard, you need to prepare for more. If you live in a large metropolitan area where evacuation could be a real problem, and infrastructure damage more severe, someplace like Los Angeles or New York, for example, you need to be prepared for more. If a disaster is more likely to arrive unannounced, such as an earthquake compared to a hurricane where advance notice is likely, you need to be prepared for more. The larger the scale of a disaster, the less time to prepare, and the more people caught up in the mess, the longer it will be before government can effectively respond. You need to determine what the circumstances would likely be for you. 
This is a simple reality. It just isn't possible in the real world for large-scale response to occur quickly relative to what many people seem to expect. If you don't want to be one of those standing in lines for hours waiting for food or water or ice and complaining incessantly on TV, just make the effort to prepare. On the other hand, is suffering more your thing? Do as so many do and naively expect the government to come riding to your rescue immediately. If your impression is that I don't have a lot of sympathy for many of those who find themselves in such a situation, you're right. Many of them could have prepared and did not. That's worse than stupid. If more people took some responsibility for their own preparedness, the available resources would get to those who truly need it much quicker. People who could do so but fail to prepare not only screw themselves, they cheat everyone else as well. Okay, enough of that. There are numerous commercially prepared 72-hour kits for sale, which they sell out of after every major disaster. It must be a little bit disturbing to be in a business where your success depends on people suffering enough to get others to wake up and smell the coffee. The other problem is that too often these folks take their new disaster kits home, stick them in the closet, and forget about them. When disaster finally strikes, they wonder why the flashlight doesn't work with dead batteries. Better than nothing, for sure, but we can do better than that. What I'm covering here can be used by you to assess whether a particular commercial kit is fit for your needs. When looking at kits, you also need to be mindful of the quality of the equipment and supplies included, not just what is there and the quantity. The essentials you need to survive for the short term are water and shelter. Everything else is a luxury. That's not to say there aren't significant advantages to having food and medical supplies and the rest. But in terms of priority, they come second after the most basic essentials. So, let's talk about sustenance, a fancy word for food and water. Water is fundamental to your body's continued health. Most of us in reasonably good health can live and even function quite well for weeks without food. But even a day without water in many environments can disable or kill you. This is where many commercial kits are most deficient. Most commercial kits rely upon standard 4.227 ounce water packets. 4.227 is also 125 milliliters, so you can guess that this was established as a standard outside the U.S. These relatively flimsy pouches were originally designed to satisfy marine life raft standards and are now widely available from numerous manufacturers, both in the U.S. and abroad. These aseptic packets are relatively easily punctured and care must be taken when opening them that you don't spill the water. They are not well designed to drink from directly. A few kits use the far more sturdily packaged aqua blocks that are 8.45 ounces or 250 milliliters and also available in liter sizes as well. I take these over the flimsy packets any day. Plus they include a straw that allows you to more easily drink from them without waste. These are similar in concept to the aseptic drink boxes so popular with kids these days, but they are built sturdier and have a much longer shelf life. Most kits I've examined provide no more than 8.4 ounces of water per person per day, based on a 72-hour requirement, some even less. Actually, you may note that many kit manufacturers rate their supplies using provisional language, such as, quote, up to three days, end quote, because they know you're, they're shorting you. To put that in perspective, that's only about a cup, a half a pint, or about equal to half a glass of water per day. That's enough to prevent death in most environments, but not enough to allow you to get done what you may have to do during the hours and days after a disaster. Oftentimes, you're going to be strenuously exerting yourself. You need lots more. 
Your absolute minimum preparedness goal should be a gallon of water per person per day, more in hot climates. Double that wouldn't be too much even in temperate climates, and that leaves nothing extra for personal hygiene. This will allow you to maintain full strength so that you can take care of yourself and others. Myself, I think five gallons per person per day is a reasonable amount. If you do it yourself, it also doesn't need to cost an arm and a leg. Packaged water designed for emergency use generally has a shelf life of five years, and it'll probably be perfectly safe for years longer. You can use plain old commercially bottled water, but you should rotate your supplies based on the expiration date on the package, and make sure to buy it in the right containers. More on that shortly. These days, the expiration time for commercially bottled water is often a couple years. If stored out of the light, it increases the likely safe storage period. You can always treat it before use, which we'll also discuss shortly. Water can be stored two ways. For shelf storage, store containers in a relatively cool, dry place away from direct sunlight. It's best if you can prevent freezing while in storage, unless that is your aim. Water can be stored in a freezer. If you lose electricity, the frozen water provides the added benefit of keeping foods frozen until power is restored. Leave two to three inches of air space in the top of containers before freezing to prevent the container from bursting as water expands during freezing. Some thin wall containers may break regardless of the airspace provided, so experiment ahead of time. If you store your water someplace where it could freeze, also follow these instructions. And never freeze water stored in glass containers. If you have a few days warning of a potential disaster, such as with a hurricane, Fill up the 90% of extra space in the freezer with water bottles, and it can last for many days. You need to leave some space for cold air to circulate inside. Avoid the flimsy, milk bottle-style, cloudy white, soft plastic gallon or half-gallon jugs with the snap-off caps made from high-density polyethylene. It won't stand up to much abuse. Tops can pop off if dropped, and if you're reusing these milk containers, you're never quite sure if you get all the organic material out of the soft plastic. Some of the warehouse big box stores, such as Costco, carry water in two and a half gallon HDP containers, two to a box. That will work satisfactorily if you keep them in the box, but they aren't designed to be refilled. Polyethylene terephthalate, most commonly referred to as PET or PET, since most of us can't figure out how to pronounce it, is best for water storage. This is commonly used for soda pop and many drinking bottles with screw-on caps. They can be rinsed thoroughly with hot soapy water and reused. They stand up well in storage, are easy to carry, and if dropped, generally won't burst, nor will the caps pop off. Glass will break if dropped and adds weight, so I don't recommend glass. You can also buy water containers from camping stores and departments or emergency preparedness stores and websites. You'll see them in sizes up to 55-gallon drubs or even larger. In my opinion, better to stick with smaller sizes such as two, three, or five gallons maximum. Larger than that, and moving or transport becomes a real problem. Five gallons weighs in at nearly 42 pounds. Try carrying that very far. Small sizes also make it much easier to share supplies or apportion them. Finally, if you have a leak or containment problem, better to lose a few gallons than 30 or more. Unless you're storing thousands of gallons, stick to smaller, easier to handle sizes. So, how should you treat water for storage? one of the most common questions I'm asked. In most cases, plain old tap water for most city water systems should be pretty much free of any disease-causing pathogens. EPA standards for municipal potable water are pretty strict, and most are regularly tested. 
since you're essentially starting with virtually sterile water. What you're most concerned with is any bacteria that might be introduced during the filling process, as well as any odd bugs that got through the disinfection treatment. It may just not be there in large enough quantities to normally cause a healthy person any problems. You want to make sure they don't multiply and create a problem given time. The simple solution is treat the water with chlorine. While it is true that most public water supplies are disinfected with chlorine or chloramines and that such water may retain enough residual disinfectant to kill any pathogens that might be introduced, it's just so simple to make sure that it is even worth debating. Just do it. To treat potable water for storage, use liquid household chlorine bleach that contains 5 to 6% sodium hypochlorite. Almost any brand of bleach will do. The standard is 5 and a quarter percent sodium hypochlorite, and those labeled ultra are typically 6%. Avoid any bleach that is labeled as smelling of wildflowers, rain clean, or with any other scent of description. You really don't want wildflower tasting water, trust me. You want plain old bleach, period. Bleach has a limited shelf life, and for best results, you should use fresh bleach, no more than a few months old. Add bleach according to the following doses using a clean medicine dropper. You can usually get one for the asking or for a nominal price from your local pharmacy. The base treatment is 4 drops of bleach per quart or liter of water, or 16 drops of bleach per gallon or 4 liter container of water. If you're going to store larger quantities, then just remember that 15 drops equals a quarter teaspoon. So a teaspoon equals 60 drops, enough to treat 3 and 3 quarter gallons. A 5 gallon water can will take about a 1 and a half teaspoons of bleach. Stir the water, cover, and allow to stand for 30 minutes. Uncap it and you ought to be able to smell chlorine. In the unlikely case that you don't, redose the water. Stir, cover, and let stand another 30 minutes. Once done, seal or cap each container tightly. Be sure to label it clearly and permanently as potable water and the date you treated it. Remember, water weighs over 8 pounds per gallon, 8.35 pounds to be exact plus the weight of its container. Make sure the shelves you store it on are up to the task. Properly treated water has been stored for periods of two to five years with no problems, especially when stored out of the light. Mind you, this water may taste pretty flat after long storage, but you can prove that a lot just by aerating it. Simply pour it from one container into another back and forth a few times to improve the taste. This also tends to dissipate the residual chlorine, further improving the taste. I am often asked if water from a swimming pool or spa would be safe to drink. The answer is generally yes. If the pool or spa is properly maintained and sanitized, it's safe. If it's been sitting sometime since last being treated, or it's been contaminated with dirt or other organic materials since then, well, some form of water disinfection may be in order. By the way, in earthquake country, you cannot depend upon that pool or spa water being available. In some instances, pools and spas have lost all or nearly all of their water. It's not a good emergency water source, at least not one you can depend upon. I also recommend a water filter or water treatment product as both a backup and to supplement your water stores. There are numerous treatments available. If bleach is available, just treat according to the instructions I gave earlier. But as noted, Bleach doesn't have a long shelf life. My favorite specialized water disinfection treatment is Katadin's MicroPure MP1, since it is virtually tasteless. The potable aqua folks have a similar product coming out. You can also use old-fashioned potable aqua and iodine treatment, 
You can get rid of the iodine taste by adding vitamin C after the treatment regime is finished. Afterwards, not before. All the water treatments have limited shelf lives, so keep that in mind as well. To hold water after treatment, you should have plenty of water containers available from your stored water. A collapsible water storage bag or something like that may be handy. Let's take a break. I'll be back in a moment. Doug Ritter's RSK Mark I folding knives were born of his frustration at not being able to recommend a perfect folder. Nothing available had all the features he preferred, at least not at a price everyone could afford. Doug Ritter's RSK Mark I folders are knives you can bet your life on. These affordable folders feature Doug's signature wide-cord, drop-point blade of Crucible's super-premium S30V stainless steel, the patented, extraordinarily strong, ambidextrous axis lock, and the most ergonomic handle you've ever held. This is a knife that compares to knives costing two or three times the price. Available in two sizes, this is the perfect holiday gift for anyone who needs a sharp blade at work or at play. Get yours exclusively at www.aromedics.com. That's A-E-R-O-M-E-D-I-X.com. A portion of the sale of each RSK Mark I knife goes to the nonprofit Equipped to Survive Foundation. As I said earlier, you don't need food to survive, and many of us could do with an enforced diet you'll feel better and perform better with food to replenish your energy stores. Most of us will do quite well on 2,000 calories a day in such a situation, though you may want more if you anticipate either heavy work or cold weather. A typical commercial kit will include about 1,200 calories per day. So figure on adding to whatever is in any kit you might buy. Complex carbohydrates are best for this purpose, starches and the like. They provide long-lasting energy and are easy to digest using minimal water. Packaged survival rations are heavily stacked in this direction, along with some fats. Fats are not quite as easy to digest as carbs, but they provide more lasting energy. Protein is not as critical in the short term and requires much more water and energy to digest. Simple sugars, such as candy, aren't much use unless you're looking for a quick, short boost of energy. You want sustainable energy. While emergency rations provide the most compact, well-balanced emergency food source, and they have the advantage of a minimum five-year shelf life, there are plenty of suitable, non-perishable foods in the grocery store, and they taste much better than even the best emergency rations and are generally much cheaper. Canned beans, beef stew, Vienna sausages, Spam, and similar staples are time-honored survival foods that will see you through and will last for years in storage. Many a can of decades-old canned food has been found in abandoned cabins perfectly fit to eat. Do please make sure you have a manually operated can opener and a backup to open these cans or any you might get from elsewhere. Nuts, dehydrated fruits, and trail mix make halfway decent survival foods, high in complex carbs and fat, but generally don't have a very long shelf life. Nuts in particular go bad fairly quickly, so make a poor choice for storing away. On the other hand, your home may be like mine where there's always a large supply of nuts on hand that are used as snacks and such, so it may be easy to rotate your stored supplies fairly easily to keep them fresh. Which brings up a good point. Store food you like to eat when it's at all possible. Difficult enough in a survival circumstance without having to force down food you don't particularly like. 
Also, a meal of food you like does a whole lot more for your positive state of mind than just something to fill your belly. Power bars and similar style foods are neither emergency rations nor particularly good as a long-term food. That's not to say you couldn't include them in your emergency food stash, just that they alone are not the answer. Beware of some power bars that contain more sugars and protein than you want, and avoid jerky as a primary food source. Unless you're assured of a reliable source of potable water, and any city source or well using an electric pump is not a reliable source, don't rely upon dry foods that require water, such as rice or pasta, or dehydrated or freeze-dried camping foods. MREs, short for Meals Ready to Eat, the U.S. military's field rations, have made quite a name for themselves because they are so often handed out by authorities after a disaster. Each meal contains about 1,300 calories. Some of them are even fairly tasty. Others, well, they leave something to be desired of in the taste or texture department. You can find reviews and information on the available menus on the web. The best suggestion I have is to make sure you heat them up using the provided heater. They are safely edible cold, just not very palatable. However, MREs have some significant drawbacks. One, they are expensive, sometimes very expensive, as the price seems to vary significantly depending upon available supply. At best, they are very expensive compared to alternatives, even if bought in bulk nor are they particularly compact or light. Also, their low fiber content can cause constipation for some folks, to the point of it becoming a serious and debilitating problem. Shelf life varies with storage temperature according to official charts. Three years at 80 degrees Fahrenheit is the official life. But some reviewers have tasted five or 10 year old MREs and reported they were okay, if not great. For all these reasons, I put MREs at the bottom or near the bottom of my list of preferred preparedness foods. Also, be aware there are differences between military MREs and civilian packaged MREs. Technically, the companies that make MREs are prohibited from selling through commercial markets to civilians, so they make a different version for sale to the public. Some are very nearly the same, others are quite different, including having far less food and calories. eBay is one of the best sources for MREs and case lots if you still want some. Just be careful. Buyer beware and all that. Since we're talking about a short-term situation, don't worry too much about trying to provide a balanced diet. If that's really a concern for you, include a bottle of multiple vitamins. If you have infants, that's a whole other set of needs you need to consider when it comes to food. Powdered formula requires water to mix it with, so be especially sure you have a reliable source. If breastfeeding, keep in mind that stuff happens in emergencies, and you need to assume that mom's breasts may not be available. Oh, don't forget the pets. They need food and water, too. Once we have sustenance out of the way, next we need shelter. We're not talking tents or RVs here, though both would be excellent. It's much more basic than that. A pair of large 33-gallon or larger garbage bags per person will do in a pinch. They can serve as both improvised sleeping bag or a poncho. More effective as a shelter would be a decent sized tarp. The plastic nylon reinforced tarps, most commonly bright blue you can find at any hardware store, will do very well in all but the coldest climates. No need to get anything fancier or more expensive. Be sure you have some rope with which to secure it. Not quite as good but still effective and even less expensive is plastic sheeting available in a roll or often sold as drop cloths. Avoid the very thinnest plastic drop cloths. It should be at least a couple mils thickness. 
For those living where it may get cold, a good wool blanket for each person will be most welcome. Wool is both warm and durable and fire resistant. Mylar emergency, quote, space blankets, end quote, while popular and included in many commercial kits, have notable drawbacks and are not the best choice. Also related to shelter is clothing. Store at least one set of work clothes for each person and sturdy boots along with a few changes of underwear. Make sure everyone has sturdy leather work gloves, or at least leather palm work gloves. In many areas, you want to be able to start a fire, so be sure to include some matches and a lighter. A lighter is easy to use, but they can leak, so you can't rely on one. It's best to have waterproof and windproof matches. Most hardware stores will have some, or you can simply get some Strike Anywhere wood matches and waterproof them with a candle wax or nail polish. For cooking, a camping stove with appropriate fuel can be handy. A single burner will do fine in most cases. Or, there are numerous types of canned or solid heat, such as sterno and esbit. Some have suggested just using their charcoal grill, but charcoal is heavy, bulky, and needs to be protected from getting wet. Also, be aware that burning charcoal produces prodigious amounts of deadly carbon monoxide, so it should never, ever be used inside your home, apartment, or even a temporary shelter. More than a few families have died by trying to use charcoal to heat a home or apartment or for cooking inside. If you plan to cook, you'll also need at least one pot and some cooking utensils. Some eating utensils, a fork and a spoon at a minimum for each person, will also be handy. Okay, next, first aid. The sad truth is that most inexpensive family first aid kits and the first aid supplies included with most commercial 72-hour kits are woefully inadequate for anything beyond a few cuts and scrapes. Your best bet to find a decent pre-assembled first aid kit will likely be an outdoor sports star. However, you can put together what you really need at any supermarket or drugstore. A good supply of adhesive bandages, not just a few, a quantity of large gauze pads and a large roll of adhesive tape a few rolled bandages, and at least one elastic bandage will all serve as a good start. Some antiseptic, such as povidone iodine, and antibiotic ointment will round out your basic supplies. Add some over-the-counter analgesics for the aches that are likely to accompany any disaster. Simple antibiotic soap, such as Dial, will almost always be useful, as will baby wipes or packaged towelettes. You can use a plastic Tupperware-style container to hold it all, dry and secure. The thing to keep in mind is that some types of disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, are more likely to create real injuries or opportunities for injuries, not just small cuts and scrapes. You should be prepared to deal with something like a broken bone or a moderate-sized bleeding wound, at least for a period of time until help arrives. Generally, you want to be able to change out bandages daily. The point being, it takes a fair bit of basics, such as bandages, to be truly prepared. Most first aid kits assume no serious injury and that a call to 911 will bring help immediately. In a disaster, help may take a while to arrive. If you or your loved ones require any personal medications, make sure you have it available for use in an emergency. This is one place where it aims to be even more conservative, keeping a couple weeks supply on hand. Access to specialty prescription medications can be especially difficult in a disaster. If you wear contacts, make sure you're covered with maintenance supplies or replacement if using disposables, and always have a spare pair of glasses. For more information on what you might want to include, what works and what doesn't, check out Equipped to Survive's medical section for a list of recommended items for a home first aid kit. Next, 
tool. A decent quality knife is the most basic tool you'll need. While a good chef's knife will do for most cooking and many other tasks, something along the lines of a sturdy hunting knife is probably the best choice. A box knife or razor knife can also be useful. Beyond that, a multi-purpose tool like a Leatherman or a selection of screwdrivers and pliers will come in handy. A good pry bar can be extremely handy and a regular old carpenter's hammer is another tool that's nice to have along with some nails. Flashlights are included in most commercial kits, but it's usually the cheapest available, generally with the cheapest batteries. If you need a flashlight, you generally need it bad and it needs to work reliably. It ought to be waterproof just in case. Invest in a decent quality flashlight. They cost very little more. I prefer LED flashlights because LEDs are so much more reliable than an incandescent bulb. And they tend to consume less power, so batteries last longer as well. You don't generally need a super powerful flashlight bright enough to light up a city block. Just something that provides a decent amount of light to allow you to get around and work in the dark. I have found headlamps to be the perfect emergency flashlight since they leave you with both hands free. Best to have one for each family member. Some pocket or keychain sized LED lights, like the photons, come with a clip that allow you to also work as clip-on light, which is another way to accomplish the same end. A lantern can also be mighty useful for general area lighting. Battery or gas both work fine. Many prefer not to have to deal with flammables and the latest fluorescent or LED lanterns work great. I am not a big fan of candles for lighting, but if you insist, at least use a candle lantern to protect from starting a fire. Be sure you have spare batteries and if you insist on an incandescent flashlight, a spare bulb. Again, LED lights have the advantage of not needing the spare bulb. Don't store the batteries in the light where leakage might cause the light to become unusable and remember to exchange them regularly. Dead batteries are one of the most common failings I find when I examine emergency preparedness kits that have been assembled with the best of intentions. If you don't use dated batteries, one tactic is to change them out when you change your clocks, if you do, or when you change the batteries in your spoke alarms, if you do, or every New Year's. That way you don't forget and they're always fresh. Use the old batteries that are still good and stuff you use every day, including your everyday flashlight. Never use so-called heavy-duty batteries. If your commercial 72-hour kit came with them, as most do, toss them. These are anything but heavy-duty. These are old-fashioned carbon-zinc batteries that have a very short shelf life and run down quickly. At a minimum, you want to use alkaline batteries. These have a decently long shelf life, typically about five years, and will run your flashlight radios and the like for a good amount of time. It's best to buy batteries with an expiration date, that way you know for sure when to replace them. Lithium batteries are even better. They typically have a 10-year shelf life, work better than alkaline and cold, and also weigh about half less. These are only readily available in AA and AAA sizes, plus the small coin cells. So that should point you to a AA or AAA shelf flashlight. It's always nice to be able to standardize on a signal battery size if you're able to. And AA is probably the most widely used in a variety of battery-operated devices. And AA's are readily available anywhere. Okay, next let's talk about communications. A battery-operated AM-FM radio is a must in order to stay informed. There are also models available that will work with a hand crank if the batteries are dead. And some also include a built-in solar charger. Again, make sure to keep fresh batteries on hand. While the cell system may go down initially or will be quickly overloaded, it will be a priority to get it back up and running. 
However, if you have no power to charge your cell phone battery, it may soon become useless. So some alternative means to charge your cell phone would be a good idea. The Sidewinder is a crank style charger that's probably the best known, but there are others as well. You can also get AA cell powered rechargers, some that allow you to install fresh batteries and some that are only good for one shot. Here's a useful tip. While cell systems are often overloaded during emergency, text messaging using your cell phone can often get through when a voice call will not. It uses much less bandwidth and the system can fit a message burst between voice traffic. Don't forget your identification, money, and critical important papers. Store copies of the following. Driver's licenses, social security cards, medications with the name and dosage, copy of a prescription or label is best, immunization cards for children, insurance documents, the name and phone number of insurance agents, and the main office of your insurance carrier, family and friends out of the area that you can depend upon in an emergency, names of lawyers to sue the insurance companies, copies of deeds, titles, and an inventory list of belongings. Here a video record could be extremely useful. Spare keys to the house, cars, safety deposit box, those sorts of things. Money can solve a lot of problems in the days and weeks immediately after a disaster. You should have no less than $100 plus a roll of quarters. But if there's time, such as with a hurricane, a few thousand in cash will ensure you get priority with any contractor. ATMs often run out of cash and don't get replenished as quickly as you'd like. Always have at least two solid credit cards and at least one $25 minimum prepaid calling card. Toilet paper is always in short supply. Make sure you have plenty. For that matter, a porta potty is another excellent nicety to have at hand. Make sure to include your personal hygiene items, such as a toothbrush and toothpaste, for example. There are few things that cannot be fixed with a little wire, rope, and duct tape. Every base kit should have plenty of all three, especially duct tape. Aluminum foil is also very versatile, but make sure you get the heavy-duty kind. Some other items that would be useful include a sewing kit and lots of safety pins for repairing clothing, as well as writing paper or pads and pencils. Some means to keep yourself entertained could be very nice to have. And if there are children in your group, are probably essential to maintain your sanity. So include things like books, games, personal electronics, with lots of spare batteries, of course, and the like. If you are of a spiritual bent, spiritual materials such as a Bible or Koran might also be a good inclusion. There's really no end to the stuff that could you include, much of it a good idea, which is what the larger list on Equipped to Survive is all about. But these basics will see you through in most situations and won't break the bank assembling them. You can store most of this stuff except for the water in a five-gallon pail or two or three, which are waterproof and will stand up to plenty of abuse. However, they aren't very portable, so you may want to include a backpack as well, just in case you need to travel on foot you can take along your most critical supplies. Store these supplies and equipment where they will be safe and secure. If your concerns include earthquake, try to store them where they will be accessible even if there is a structural collapse. Make sure you replace items with limited shelf lives when appropriate. You've gone to a lot of trouble assembling this stuff. Make sure it's able to be used if you ever need it. Finally, don't rob your emergency preparedness kit when you need something for non-emergency use. You'll likely never remember to replace it, and it won't be there when you really, really need it. Strong people don't necessarily survive. Smart people do. Be smart. Be equipped to survive. Mm -hmm.
This has been an EquipCast podcast with your host, Doug Ritter. The nonprofit Equip to Survive Foundation Survival Forum is a great place to get answers to your survival and preparedness questions. This is a family-friendly online community with a lot of expertise available, and Doug Ritter also often contributes. You can get there directly from the Equip to Survive homepage at www.equipped.org. That's E-Q-U-I-P-P-E-D dot O-R-G. Equip to Survive's Equip podcast is brought to you by the nonprofit Equip to Survive Foundation. The foundation is dependent on contributions from individuals to support its work. Donations from listeners like you help make this possible. Please, make a tax-deductible contribution and help equip the Equip to Survive Foundation to survive. The EquipCast trademark theme was composed and performed by Joe Godfrey, www.joegodfrey.com. All views expressed are those of the author or speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of Equip to Survive or the Equip to Survive Foundation. This podcast is copyright 2005 by Douglas S. Ritter and the Equip to Survive Foundation. All rights reserved and may not be used for commercial purposes. Equip to Survive is a registered trademark. Find out more at www.equipped.org.